Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Jamie Girl Pridgen speaks on our identities and how God sees us. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Anybody ever heard of A.W. Tozer? He wrote this book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's like this thin book, but man, it takes forever to read because every sentence you have to read like five times. It's like, oh, this is so deep. But it's all about the different attributes of who God is. But I was thinking about that during worship. And Tozer, he, he says this. He says, um, he, he identifies the most important thing about you. Do you know what the most important thing about you is? Some of you that have read the book maybe could finish the quote. But, you know, the most important thing about you is not necessarily how talented you are, how gifted you are, how smart you are, what kind of grades you made, what kind of reputation you have, what kind of job you have. The most important thing about you is not something you do, but something you understand. And Tozer says the most important thing about you, the most important thing about any man is what he believes about God. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. It's the most important thing about you. What is God like? What's he like? What is he thinking? What is he feeling? How does he feel about you individually? Like, what is God saying over your life right now? That's the most important thing about you. And so often, inside and outside of the church, we get that wrong completely. Because all the attacks of the enemy, all the targets of the enemy, all the arsenals of the enemy are pointed at one thing. Destroying the knowledge of God. Giving people whack ideas about God. So what does he do really practically? He goes after the family. I mean, I'm not going to do a right show of hands, but how many of us have daddy issues, right? Like, we don't know our dads. Our dads are broken, messed up. So there's dysfunction within families. He goes after marriages so that we can't imagine what a beautiful marriage of love and mutuality and respect and honor is. And he, he is attacking these, these relationships in the earth. Because they point to a greater relationship, the relationship that God is extending to each one of us. So if we can see God in this really broken lens, I remember trying to study the father heart of God when I was in my 20s. And my relationship with my own father was so jacked up and broken. I couldn't even, I'm not even kidding you guys, I couldn't even imagine what a good father was like. I had to like, I literally did this. Some of you, this will be helpful. I made a chart, you know, paper and pencil, and I put truths about God and, you know, truths about the Father and lies about the Father. And I I could line all the lies up because that was my experience. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be abandoned. He's going to just blow up one day in anger and wrath. All these lies based on my own experiences. And then I actually went to the scriptures to find the truth. What does the Bible say about who God is as Father? 
And it took me years to actually believe the truth of the Bible to counter my own experiences with who God is. And, but because I had a broken view of who God was as Father, guess what it caused me to do? You kind of want to stay back here, right? You want to live at a distance. You don't want to be close because I don't really know what he's like. I don't really have a relationship with him. And, I, you know, we, we tend to think of God as mostly angry and agitated with us. Every time, anytime I preach I ask, and I ask this question, I say, how many of you feel like before the Lord you should be further along? Like you should be further along, you should be doing more, knowing more. And literally 90% of the room, they've heard that before. If they are not hearing it right now, they've definitely heard that. Is that true in this room too? Yeah, right? We, we hear this, this lie. When, when, you, when you do better, then he'll love you. Like you've got to work to earn his love. You've got to prove yourself to him. That you should be better and then he would, might love you more. You should have already gotten over that sin. You should already know all that Bible. You know, you should be better, right? And this comes from our broken view of God, and the enemy loves to just come in and get in our ear and help strengthen our broken view of God. Does that make sense? And so we have this, this distortion of who God is, and so then it causes us to live at a distance. If you think of him as like a principle, and every time you come before him, you're going to be in trouble, how many of you spent some time in the principal's office? I can tell. You look like you did. <laughs> I mean, nobody wanted to get called into that room, right? You just did not want to go be in the principal's office. You don't want to get in trouble. And yet, this is why a lot of people don't pray. Because it's like, I'm just going to have to focus on all my sins and just spend an hour, like, apologizing to God for how bad I am and repenting to God for how terrible I am and all the bad things I did today alone and so we assume he hates us as much as we hate ourselves. We assume he's as disappointed with us as we are with ourselves. Some of y'all perfectionists in here know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Never good enough. And we assume that God's just like us. That he, that he just focuses on our flaws and failures. And yet that's not who he is at all. And so when I was praying earlier today, or actually earlier this week, and I was praying about tonight, I said, God, what do you want me to say? I could talk about a lot of different things. What do you want me to share with gatekeepers this week? And I just heard the Lord so clearly tell me, he said, just tell them who they are. Just remind them who they are. Our, our greatest weakness as humans is, is our failure to remember. Our tendency to forget so quickly. It's like the... the uh, C.S. Lewis said, the great job of every moral teacher is just to keep bringing us back to the truths that we so quickly forget. He loves you. And I, I just want to talk just for a few moments tonight about identity. Because identity changes everything. And when you have a right view of God, when you know who he is, and you know how he feels about you, when you know what he says about you, then you begin to enter into your identity, and that changes everything. Now think about this just for a moment. I'm going to give a little weak parable. Jamie's the good storyteller. I'm not. He's got all the good stories and can juggle and make you guys laugh. 
and I'm not good at any of that. But I do, I want to give you a little, little parable, and if you have a better story, you can come add to it. I'm sure you do. Um, but just imagine with me for a moment that there's this king and this queen, and they have a baby, this royal baby. And at birth, this royal baby was kidnapped out of spite, out of jealousy, out of envy. And the baby was taken from the palace, given a new name, and dropped off at an orphanage, you know, thousands of miles away from the palace. And the baby grows up in this orphanage, unloved, unwanted, uncared for, experiencing neglect and mistreatment and abuse. And as soon as the, the baby is old enough, it's kicked out into the streets as a young boy or teenager. And on the streets... This, this kid lives as a beggar, begging for coins, rummaging through garbage day after day, just a street kid, homeless, without anything, without any family. But imagine one day, you know, but also imagine the, the king and the queen are every year, like, posting, you know, pictures of what this kid might look like at this age. You know, the, the missing posters, how they can somehow know from the baby what they're going to be like at 15. So imagine that this is being published every year. This is what he could look like. And imagine one day you're walking down the street and you see this, this guy that seems completely out of place. He's like rummaging through the trash, but he doesn't look like anybody else around him. And you immediately go, I, that, whoa, is that who I think it is? Is that that's the son of the king. What is he doing out here begging for coins and rummaging through garbage? What would you do? Like if you, then you're like, no, I 100% know that's him. That is the son of the king. And you're walking by, what would you do in that moment? You would tell him? What would you tell him? You're the guy. Do you know who you are? You're the guy. You're you said you're going to take him to the palace like you're going to help this guy, right? You're going to say, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? This is so beneath you. You're the son of the king. You don't belong on the streets. You don't belong digging through the trash, eating garbage. You know, you don't really need that cup of coins. You have more money than you even know about. When that guy realizes who he is, when he realizes his identity, what's going to happen to his life? It's going to change. Everything's going to change. He's going to go from the streets to the palace, from a pauper to a prince. Everything's about to change for him, from no love to being the most adored and dearly loved, a love he's never even known about his whole life, but he's been loved before he ever knew he was loved. Identity changes everything. Some of you guys are in that same place. Maybe you're not physically eating trash, but you're living so far beneath what you're called to. You've forgotten who you are. You don't know that you have a father who's crazy about you. That you have a place at the table. That he adores you and that power belongs to you. Wealth belongs to you. You know, the, the kingdom belongs to you. This is the good news of the gospel. That a bunch of orphans, a bunch of beggars got adopted into the family. 
that we always wanted to be a part of. I mean, we like Little Orphan Annie, you know, that story. It's like she gets adopted. But this is even better than Little Orphan Annie. I mean, this God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this is the family we've always wanted to be a part of. <laughs> the families that we watch on the sitcoms, like, oh, growing up, the perfect family. This is a family of power, wealth, aristocracy, and a family where you belong, where you're wanted, where you're accepted. And I think tonight the Lord just wants to remind us, just tell, remind them who they are, remind them who I am and who they are, because identity, it really changes everything. When you begin to step into who you are, I remember even when I was single, probably like young, 21 or something, and this identity hit me when I realized I'm a daughter of the king. I just, that was my focus. I would just meditate on that and pray about that. Like, I'm the daughter of the king. I'm a daughter of the king. I'm royalty. And one day, this is funny, but one day this uh, guy, like, at Walmart, of all places, like, makes a cat call to me. He just, like, tries to, like, he's driving it and, like, hits on me. And before I knew what was happening, I just turned around like, you can't talk to me like that. Do you know who I am? And he just like speeds off. But I just, I had believed it for myself. Like I'm not a piece of meat for you to make a comment at. I'm a daughter of the king. Like he would not like you speaking to me like that. And it had just become such an integral part of me. I was focused on it so much. I just was starting to believe it. And it started manifesting in how I lived my life. We don't go to those prisons of shame when we fail. If we truly believe that we're a son who's dearly loved, a daughter who's dearly loved. We, we stay out of those pits of despair and shame. Self-hatred gets broken off of you. Some of you, when you look in the mirror, you don't see anything good. All you see is flaws. It's time to align yourself with what the king says about you. And when you begin to see yourself through his eyes, everything changes. You begin to love yourself the way he loves you. I like Romans 8. It says the whole of creation is groaning, longing for the manifestation of the sons of God. Not only is this for you, but it's for the whole world. The world is waiting to see sons who would step into their identity who you could tell people, look at me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. When people see you, they've seen the Father because the love you have is so pure and so holy, just like His. The way you serve and the way you give, the way you lay yourself down, the way you bless and don't curse, it is so unlike anything they've ever seen before. Right? The world's going to know we're disciples by what? By our love. They're going to see your good deeds, and they're not going to glorify you. They're going to glorify who? Your Father in heaven, right? The world's longing for sons who can come in the authority of their Father and manifest the kingdom. If power belongs to your Father, and all the resources of the world belong to your Father, then you have access. You're the heir, right? This is what the world's longing for, longing for sons, the sons of God to arise. So how do we get there? 
How do we get there? Ephesians 1, you can look with me uh, on your phones or your Bibles. Anybody know somebody that can recover a Bible? It's really sad. Ephesians 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Look at this. Just as he chose us. Say chose. You're chosen. It's pretty intense. You're chosen. You're wanted. Some of you have felt unwanted all your lives. But I tell you, the spirit of adoption, it breaks off the spirit of rejection. I don't even know where my notes are. It's on my iPad. The spirit of adoption, it breaks the spirit of rejection. You've been chosen. God has been dreaming of you before the foundations of the world. I don't care what your parents said. I don't care if your dad left and he didn't want you. I don't care if your mom said you were a mistake. God chose you. He dreamed of you. He created you. He wove thousands of generations of DNA together just to have you. You're chosen. That's, that alone, you could sit there and think about that for a while. I wasn't a very good athlete. Imagine that. Like, we did, like, dodgeball and stuff in school. Guess who was always last? Nobody wanted me on their team. I wasn't good. <laughs> I was just going to, like, stink it up no matter what. I probably was, like, scared of the ball, not even get near the ball. I wasn't ever chosen first. That was reserved for the good kids, the good athletes, the girls who, like, could fight like the boys, you know. Um, I wasn't chosen first. I don't know what that feels like for the dodgeball team. But on God's team, I'm chosen. I'm chosen. You're chosen. You're picked. You're, like, the first draft pick to the Lord. Now, so is the guy beside you, but don't worry about that. It's you. As it relates to you and God, you're the first pick. He chose you. He wanted you. God could have chosen anything, you know. He had a blank canvas, and yet he chose you. Before the foundation of the world, and I like this because it says he chose us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He wanted you holy. God could have saved us and made us kind of pay the rest of our lives. You ever had somebody that gave you a gift and that thing had all kind of strings attached? And they made you know, like they made you feel it. Like they reminded you of that all the time. What a great gift they gave you. How indebted you are to them. How kind and benevolent they are and how, you know, worthless you are. God could have done that to us. He could have kept us on a chain and just reminded us constantly that we are inferior and we live at a distance. We're the dogs that he, he rescued from the pound. I mean, we really, he really could have set it up like that. You're, a, you're the stray dog and he's so kind. But he didn't do that. He says, no, I don't want you living dirty your whole life. I want you holy. I want to... Take all your filthy rags, and I want to wash you white as snow. I want to make you clean, holy, as holy as Jesus. That's what God did. 
had a friend this week. She was struggling. She came, she, she called me, come on, can we pray? And can we take communion? I just want to get under the blood. I just love that. Let's get under the blood because it makes us so clean. We're holy and we're blameless. The past is forgotten. You and I, somebody does us wrong, we're like, I might forgive them, but I won't ever forget it. God says, no, I forget it. I throw your sins into a sea of forgetfulness. He chooses to forget. That's how he forgives. He washes us clean. And he says, I don't want you feeling shame in my presence. There's no blame. There's no shame. You're holy. You're clean. You're as holy as Jesus, the perfect one. Come on, that's identity. Holy. My identity is holy. My identity is blameless. You walk a little different when you're holy, when you're blameless. I'm not a a, a hopeless hypocrite struggling to love God. He never wanted that from me. He never wanted me to identify that way as this sinner who mostly makes bad choices, but I kind of try to show up on Thursdays and worship a little bit. That's not how God mostly views you. He doesn't mostly view you through the lens of your struggles and sins and weaknesses. When he looks at you, he looks at you through the lens of the blood of his son. You're holy and you're blameless. My prayer time, like I said, it used to be, Jesus, forgive me for being prideful. Jesus, forgive me for talking about so-and-so. Jesus, forgive me for, you know, this and forgive me for that. And I, I would just... It was just like, that's all I would do, is just like focus on my issues and say I'm sorry to God for them. This is when I'm on staff as an intercessor here in the prayer room. And one day, God just broke in as I'm sitting there just going through my laundry list of all my sins that I could think of. And he was like, Jamie, can we talk about something else? I get it. I get it that you're sorry, but can we talk about something else? And I just started crying. I just got pierced when he said that to me. And I realized, like, we have this one-sided conversation that's just focused on my brokenness. And I don't even know the half of how broken I really am. It's probably my pride that's just going through saying all the sins, thinking somehow I'm proving something to God that I can remember what I did this week or whatever. He's like, Jamie, can we talk about something else? Can we talk about me? And I changed my prayers I still repent of sins, but my, the majority of my prayer time now is not focused on me and my issues and my weaknesses. It's focused on him because as I turn my eyes on him, the desire that the world is pulling at me, that, that lust for the things of the flesh, the pride of life, all that the world can offer, it just grows really dim. Its hold grips really weak as I focus on Jesus on his glory, on his beauty. I get changed when I focus on his mercy, how merciful he's been to me, how kind he is towards me, how gentle he is with me and my failings and shortcomings and weaknesses. And as I behold his mercy, guess what happens to me? I become more merciful to people. And then I don't have to just 
pray, God, make me merciful, or God, forgive me for not being merciful. It's just in knowing him and his mercy that we're transformed, right? We behold him, and we become transformed into his image and his likeness. It's about knowing him. It's about our identity before him. He chose us to be holy, to be blameless, and then I love this, to be before him in love. We weren't made to live at a distance. Ever since the days of Moses, when the children of Israel were like, hey, God's a little scary and it's kind of freaky. And when he comes down on on the mountain, all the cloud and smoke and thunder and lightning and like, you know, a million people, they're like two million people are freaked out at God. And they're like, hey, Moses, you, you go deal with God. We'll stay down here. This is a safe distance. You go be with God. It was never meant to be like that. And somehow into American Christianity, we've kind of adopted that same model. Like, hey, pastor, you go be with God, and, and, and I'll be good to sit down here, and I'll come Sunday and hear a message. But, yeah, I, I'm going to live at a distance. We were never made to live at a distance. When you got saved, part of your identity is you're a, a kingdom of priest. You're all priest. You might be a banker when you grow up. I don't know. I mean, not that you're not grown up, but you know what I mean. Like, it might be your job as a banker or a teacher, but you're a priest. No matter where you go, this isn't a job title. This is an identity, eternal identity before the Lord. You're a priest forever. You were made for nearness. You were made for worship. God's seeking worshipers right now. This is why he he's, comes so near when we just sing, even those of us who can't sing at all. He comes near because he's looking for worshipers. That's your identity. You're a priest. And he wants you before him. He's not content for you to live at a distance. He's not content with just one day a week Christianity. He's jealous for all of you. He wants you before him in love. That's what you were made for. No separation, no distance. Your eyes were made to see him. Your heart was made to flow back and forth in love with him. Your ears were made to hear from God. If you're not hearing him, if you're not seeing him, you're living so far beneath what you were created for. You're out there eating the garbage and you belong in the palace. He wants you before him. He's prepared a table for you. You have a place at his table. His door is always open, Revelation 4.1. There's a door standing open in heaven and a voice saying, get up here. Come up here. Come up higher. This is where you belong. Song of Solomon 2, he says, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Peter's voice isn't enough. He wants your voice. I'm not a singer. My mom pinched me in church because I would throw the whole row off. With my singing, it would be so out of key. She's like, shh, stop it. Guess what? He wants my voice. He wants my song. And a thousand beautiful angelic voices like Julianne still can't replace my crackling voice. He wants our song. He says, let me see your face. Jamie's face in the secret place can't replace my face. He wants your face. He wants your voice. 
In life, you're replaceable. Somebody will be better at you than sports. Somebody will be better at a job. You'll get passed over for a job because somebody's better. You might get fired one day because somebody's better. You're totally replaceable in life, but not in the heart of God. You have security in the heart of your father. I don't care how anointed the person is. I don't care if they see angels in their bedroom every night. I don't care if they can preach and thousands get saved. I don't care if they can pray the heavens open and rain come down. It doesn't matter because he wants your face and your voice. Your little weak voice, your little, you know, your little face like, God, here I am. I don't even know how to pray. It's like, oh, I just want to hear your voice. Your voice moves me. There's no voice like yours in the whole earth. You're irreplaceable to him, and that's why he wants you before him. That's why God's not willing that one person should perish and go to hell. Because he made each one of us unique. Look around. None of us are like the other. Just a bunch of weird birds in one cage together. And he wants all of us. Every single one of us. That's why your song is so important. Your prayer, your time with Jesus. It doesn't have to look like anybody else's. Because you're not like anybody else. I have four kids. They're all so different. But I wouldn't give one of them up. I wouldn't trade one for another. I want all four. I would die for all four of them. How much more the Lord, your creator. He wants you before him. If you're living anywhere other than before him, you're living so far beneath what you were created for. The psalmist says it like this, as for me, it's good to be near to God. Your nearness is my good. This is what you were made for, nearness. How close can we be on this side? That's what I'm asking. I want to be as close as I can on this side before I step into eternity. He wants you before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. In making you a son and not a slave or just a servant, that says so much. Because guess what? If you're a son, not only do you have nearness. My kids, there's no boundaries. They just will bust open any door. And anything in the house is theirs. They know that because they're my children. All that's mine is theirs. They don't even ask. They just take it. I tell them sometimes, go away. They don't take no for an answer. When you're a son, prayer there's no no. You don't take no for an answer. And I don't mean it like, you know, sometimes God tells us no for our good, but I'm saying somebody's lost. They're, they're going to hell. And you're like, God, I want them saved. And I'm going to keep knocking and I'm not going to stop until they're saved. Until you encounter them. You get a boldness in prayer. You don't quit praying because you're a son. You know that everything he has belongs to you. Healing belongs to him, so it belongs to me. Salvation belongs to him. So I'm at, everywhere I go, I'm going to say salvation spring up from the ground because God's the author of salvation. Angels, 
belong to him and he commissions the angels. And so I get to commission the angels to minister to the heirs of salvation. When your sons, everything that belongs to him now belongs to you because you have an inheritance. You're co-heirs with Christ. You're heirs of God and you're co-heirs with Christ. This is how we're going to do the greater works than Jesus did. Because we're going to walk as sons. We're going to manifest everything the Father has. Everything in his house. It's ours for the taking. This is why creation groans. He predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And let me just say this about adoption. He didn't just call us sons. You know what he did? He sent the spirit of his son. God did. He sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And what does the Holy Spirit cry out from our hearts? Abba, Father. Why? Because we forget. So he sends the spirit of his son into our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father, to give you permission to remind you of who you are all day, every day. Call him Father, you're his son. He wants you. Dare to believe it. Abba, Abba, you have access. Everything, everything that belongs to the Father belongs to you. And the spirit of his son is in your heart, in your spirit, testifying. That you're a son, you're not a slave, you're not a servant, you're not outside the house. You're wanted, you're accepted, you're chosen, you're dearly loved. And God's not just doing this to kind of be the nice guy. Like we kind of think, oh God, you're just putting up with me, you're enduring me. You're, it's like, you know, the prince that got stuck with the ugly stepsister. He really wanted Cinderella, but this is what he got. But that's not how it is with the Lord. Look at this next part of the verse. He predestined us to adoption by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. This is what made him happy. You. Adopting you as sons, making you holy and blameless, giving you everything, making you co-heirs with Christ, calling you a son. That's what brought his heart the most pleasure. What brings him the most glory. He could have done anything. He says, as for the saints on the earth, they're the excellent ones in whom is all of my delight. All of the delight of God is wrapped up in you. You make him really happy. And it says, which he made us. Well, to the praise of the glory of his grace, end of the day, we're all trophies of grace. None of us could earn this. By which he made us accepted in the beloved. Say accepted. You're accepted. All of your quirkiness, all of your weirdness, accepted. Where others have rejected you, undervalued you, you're accepted. Accepted. Accepted in the beloved. He never wants you to feel like an outsider. You're accepted. Delighted in, treasured, valued for who you are. You don't have to be like another person. You don't have to be like the person on your right or your left. You're accepted for you. You're loved for who you are, how he made you. There's so much freedom in that. And you know what it does? It frees us from comparison 
And then we're able to just celebrate other people. We're able to champion other people without jealousy or fear, like God likes them better than me. When you get confident in how he feels about you, you can become everybody's best cheerleader because it's not a race. I already am seated at the table. I just want to get you there too, (laughs) right? We're not like trying to earn God's attention or see who can jump the highest or scream the loudest. We're already accepted. He loves you, and I can be excited about that, and he loves me, and I know that, and I can be excited about that, and there's no comparison. We can be confident. When you know you're accepted, you become confident in love. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Chosen, accepted, holy, blameless, adopted. I mean, this is good. It seems too good to be true, except it's true. It's true. This is who you are. This is what you've been invited into. And this is why all of hell is raging to keep you from believing this. To keep you from believing that you have the very best father in the whole world. To keep you from believing that you're a daughter or a son that's dearly loved, valued, and accepted. Well, tonight, like I said, I wasn't going to talk about this, but the Lord started talking to me about Luke 15. And I think it's the word for tonight. I was going to just continue on with the intimacy message. But I wanted us to look at Luke 15 because I think there's something for all of us there. It's a familiar passage, the story of the prodigal son, right? You probably have all heard multiple sermons on this before. I was telling Jamie, I'm like, I don't know that I've ever really preached Luke 15 before. But like you, I've heard a lot of sermons on it. And I'm going to read it. Well, I'll just read it in the New King James. I like the Passion Translation. Do you guys ever read that? The Passion Translation in the Bible app? Check it out. It's pretty good. All right, let's look at verse 11. Certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. In other words, I want my inheritance. I want it now. And this would be like in that culture and in Jewish custom, it would be like telling his dad, like, I just wish you were dead. I just want what you can give me, and you're dead to me. Like, I don't want relationship with you. And so... The father divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. So he took his father's inheritance, and he spends it. He spends it all. Prostitutes, parties, living it up. And it says, when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. My old pastor, he used to say, sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go and keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And so this young son, he had a lot of fun for a minute, and then he began to be in want. And that's the thing about sin. There's pleasure. Even the Bible says that. There's pleasure in sin, but it's momentary. And it rapes your soul and leaves you destroyed and destitute and impoverished and wanting. It never fills you. 
Like whatever the thing is that all of us have our sins that the Bible says kind of easily beset us, like the sin that we kind of have to fight. And we always think it's going to satisfy and fill us. And we go to that thing and it always leaves us empty. The momentary pleasure, it's so fleeting and we feel so empty, so in want. And that's where this young man finds himself. It says, then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. So he finds this farmer, says, hey, I need a job. I'm hungry. And he says, okay, you can keep my pigs. Well, that's a pretty menial, lowly job for anybody, but especially a good Jewish boy, because in the law, it says you shall not handle swine. So this is just the worst, most humiliating kind of job that he's having to do. So whatever that in our society, like the lowest of the lowest, the lowest job, imagine you're doing that. And it says, he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. So he's sitting there like eating slop, this good Jewish boy, like, oh, this, the pig slop is so appealing because he's so hungry. He's like, oh, this looks so good. I just wish I could eat what the pigs are eating. And nobody gave him anything. Nobody had compassion on his scrawny frame. He was starving. In verse 17, this is what has hit me and what I pray often. It says, when he came to his senses. When he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I don't know what it was. He was out day after day, like, feeding the pigs in a, a, a you know, distant land from where his father lived, where he grew up. He's out there eating slop, like, stealing the pig's food day after day living in squalor and filth. And one day, he came to his senses. I don't know how many days passed of him eating slop before he came to his senses. But I'm believing that God is, this is something I pray for prodigals. People that are away from the Lord, that they belong in the Father's house, I pray, bring them to their senses. Can we take 10 seconds and pray for prodigals? I want you to think of one or two people in your head right now And just before the Lord, let's just ask for them right now that they would come to their senses tonight. Father, we pray for prodigals right now. Those that belong in your house that tonight they're out eating with the pigs. Even some from this spiritual family, from gatekeepers that are out eating with pigs tonight. Right now, we just lift them before your throne and I'm praying they would come to their senses. They would come to their senses. They would wake up. They would realize that they belong in the Father's house. They would say, I'm going to arise and go to my Father. Thank you, God. Thank you that you do it in a moment, in an instant. In Jesus' name, amen. He came to his senses. He woke up. He came to himself. He realized, what am I doing? I'm going to go to my father's house. He treats his, like, employees way better than this. Like, they have it made compared to what I'm doing right now. He said, I'm going to say to my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he kind of had his, his I'm sorry speech, you know, like the head hung low, like I don't deserve to be your son. I'll, I'll live outside of the house. I'll work your fields. You treat your servants better than this guy's treating me as his servant. And he says he arose, it came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, 
His father saw him. This is the father that's looking and longing all day, every day, looking and longing for his son to return. It said the father had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. This was not the response he was thinking he was going to get, not the welcome. He was expecting the speech, right? The anger, the wrath, and instead he got kisses. Compassion. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy. And the father's like, stop, just stop. Hey, servants, come on, bring me my robe, put it on him, put sandals on his feet, a ring on his finger, kill the fattened calf, let's prepare a feast. We're going to celebrate. My son who was dead, he's alive. My son who was lost, he is found. And the father is rejoicing that his son is back with him where he belongs, before him in love. In verse 25, the older brother now comes into the picture. The older son was in the field. He too was outside of the father's house. And he came and drew near to the house. And when he heard music and dancing, he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said, your brother has come, and because he received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. This made the older brother angry, and he starts pouting. Now, it tells me all I need to know about the older brother, because even though the, the younger son was in a faraway place, distant from the father, the older brother who lived in the house, he too was distant from the father. He was working for the father, but he had no relationship with the father. He didn't know his heart. Because if he did, and the brother came home, he would be rejoicing too. He would be celebrating. And instead, he was filled with envy and bitterness and jealousy. And he wouldn't even go in the house. He wouldn't even enter. He wouldn't celebrate. And so now the father has to go out to this son. And the father, he says, he comes out and he it says he pleaded with him. He pleaded with him. He answered and said to his father, I, these many years I've been serving you. I never sinned your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. You never threw me a party. You never even gave me and my friends any food. But as soon as this son of yours came, not my brother, but this son of yours who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Both of these brothers had an identity crisis. One was eating pig slop, something that was so beneath him being treated worse than his father's employees, you know, like starving. He had forgotten who he was as a son. And then you have the older brother who is in his own identity crisis. The father says, son, everything I have is yours. You're not in a competition with your brother. It's, it all belongs to you. If you knew my heart, you too would be rejoicing because the son of mine was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. 
And I think some of us, we're living beneath what the Lord has for us. In whatever ways that is, and it's different for each of us, but we might be, you know, in a pig, in a pig trough, in a pig's pen, when we need to be in the palace. We're settling for slop and scraps when he wants to prepare a feast for us. And some of us are like the older brother. We're serving faithfully. We're doing the thing, but our hearts are disconnected from the Father. We don't realize our identity. We're jealous of other people or don't feel like we're seen where we are. And he's saying, oh, everything I have is yours. It all belongs to you. I want you in the house too. And that's where I, I, wanna, I want our ministry time tonight. I just want to get before the Lord and I want to let him sing over us and speak over us our identity, the way he feels about us. The fact that he's chosen us, that he, he's the father who's always looking and always ready to embrace you. Ready to put the robe on your back, the ring on your finger. And then there comes a time when you're so connected to your identity in him. Look, last thing, Psalm 36. I think. Psalm 36. Psalm 36, verse 7. How rare or how precious is your love, your kindness. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Listen to this. They're abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. Abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. You give them drink from your river of pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. The most miserable people I know are like the older brother. They're believers, they're Christians, who know enough about God that sin is not enjoyable anymore. You know, after you come to know the Lord, it's like you have the Holy Spirit. I remember first getting saved and then trying to go back and do some of the things I did before I was saved. And it's like the Holy Spirit's in my ear. And just I feel the gnawing conviction. And I feel bad and I feel guilty. And I'm like, I shouldn't do this anymore. And, oh, before, I didn't ever think about it. But now I'm like, oh, I shouldn't be here. And it was, it's always like the Lord gives you that little door of escape whenever you're tempted. And I'm like, oh, there's the door I need, you know, and I'm just in this wrestle. It's not fun anymore, <laughs> you know, that, that the fun of it is kind of gone. But I didn't know God enough to know how to access the pleasures that come from loving him and being loved by him. I wasn't getting fed from his house, but the world's like table lost its appeal to me. But I tell you, there's fullness in the Father's house. There's abundant satisfaction for the sons. We don't have to leave the father's house. When you're a son, when you're a daughter, you have no need to go anywhere else. In fact, David said it like this. He said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. Just, I'd rather just kind of stand at the door of the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Like the, the most amazing parties of the wicked. I, I'd just rather hang out and be a doorkeeper in the house of God. He wasn't just saying that to be pious or sound cool. He, he had revelation of the magnitude of the Father's house, the pleasure, the satisfaction 
There's a river that you drink from, and it's full of pleasure. It's full of delights. There's satisfaction in his house. And as we step into our identity as sons, we begin to drink from that river. We begin to to find our pleasure from his house. The world loses its appeal. I mean, and, and I know this is true for you. It's true for me. It's true for Jamie. Things that, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I'm like, I'm never going to be free of this. This is such a temptation. As you say no and resist that and you start getting fed from the Father's table, that stuff loses its appeal. It's not a temptation anymore. Anybody ever been there? Something that was so tempting in your past, it's really not a temptation anymore because of of freedom, because you're finding satisfaction in different places. So I want to pray for us, okay? Our worship team, come. I'm going to, I want to pray, and then I just had, the Lord just laid this random song on my heart this week, and I just asked our team if they would just sing it over us. And um, as I do that, I want us to just position ourselves wherever you want to just to receive from the Lord. Because I, I really believe the beginning of worship tonight was really connected to what he's doing right now. He's opening our eyes to see, to see him rightly, to see ourselves rightly. You're not an orphan, you're a daughter. You're not an orphan, you're a son. You're not a slave, you're a friend right? I haven't called you servants. You're not just a worker for God. He has 10,000 times 10,000 angels to do his works. He doesn't need you working for him. He wants relationship. He's called you friends. You're a bride. He's fighting on your behalf, offering you access, the most near, the most intimate place, There's a door open and there's access for you to come. So I want to invite you to stand to your feet. Lord, I told them who they are. Now, Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would bear witness. Father, you who sent the the spirit of your son into their hearts to cry out, Abba, bearing witness that they're no longer slaves but sons, pray that right now you would bear witness. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're a son. You're a daughter. Right now, I pray many would come to their senses. I just think many are coming to their senses right now. Realizing, wow, I have a place in my father's house. What am I doing? Spending my time anywhere else. Why am I looking for love from that guy or that girl? When the father's arms are open wide giving me all the acceptance, all the love, all the validity I need. Don't enter into a relationship, a human relationship, without knowing your identity as a son or a daughter. You're just going to hurt him. It's going to end badly for you. 
don't get in a relationship with anybody that doesn't know their identity. If he doesn't know he's a son, he's not going to know how to love you as a husband. If she doesn't get her satisfaction from the father's house, she will suck you dry and you'll never be enough. Awaken us to our identity even now. Break off the spirit of rejection with the spirit of adoption. You're chosen. You're valued. You're accepted in the beloved. You're holy. The Father's not saying over you, you should be further along. You should be doing more. He's not tapping his foot and demanding that you perform. His banner over you is love. You're holy. You're blameless. You were made for nearness. You were made for nearness. And where you've been distant, as you take one step toward him, he runs a thousand towards you. When you come with your speech, he says, stop, I love you. Here's a robe, here's a ring, here's sandals, here's a feast. Tonight, you're literally gonna take one step toward the Lord. You're gonna turn, you're gonna take one step and he's gonna meet you. He's going to run the rest of the way toward you. You were made for nearness. There's a door standing open in heaven. There's a voice like a trumpet saying, come, come up here. Come up now. The Father's calling to you saying, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Come get under the blood tonight. Get clean. Get washed. Let him speak holy over you. Forgiven. Sanctified. Cleansed. Some of you are going to just step right into your authority. I'm a son. That means everything that you have is mine. It's time for the manifestation of the sons of God. To begin to manifest your father everywhere you go words, in your speech, in your purity, in your lifestyle, in the power of God, and healings, and miracles, and prophetic words, and words of knowledge, and signs and wonders, evangelism everywhere you go, the confidence of being a son. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would come and you would rest on us. Release this message of identity. Reveal the Father to us. And I just hear Jesus saying, the Father himself, he loves you. The Father himself, he loves you. The Father himself, he loves you. You are so loved. You're so precious, precious, are his thoughts concerning you. They outnumber the grains of sand. You are so loved. You're so desired. 
You're a priest forever. You were made for nearness. No more living at a distance. No more living in shame. Thank you for identity. Holy Spirit, for telling us who we are. We don't want to live beneath what you died for. You didn't die so we could live in a pig trough. You didn't shed your precious blood so we can live as slaves to sin. Just barely getting by. Oh, it's for freedom that you set us free. The sons are free. They're free indeed. The sons are free. They're free indeed. The sons walk in freedom. Intimacy. Love. Acceptance. The sons are free. Yeah, they're free indeed. You want greater levels of freedom. Step into your identity as a son. Sons don't rummage through the garbage. The father, he prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. The Father satisfies you abundantly with the fullness of his house. You want pleasure? You want your mind blown? There's a river. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. There's a river that brings life to every dead place that it touches. There's a river of abundant satisfaction, a river of delights. He'll give you a drink. Without money, without cost, come to the river. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. Well, there's no depression on the suns. There's fullness of joy. No need to be anxious. There's fullness of joy. There's pleasures forevermore. Everything he has is yours. He's breaking unbelief off of his sons. Everything he has is yours and nothing is hard for him. Nothing is impossible for him. Everything in the house belongs to the sons, the daughters. It's not even hard for him. tonight would be just a turning point where we refuse to settle for anything less. That there would just be an indignation even within our hearts that we would refuse to live as paupers when you've seated us as princes. That we wouldn't live as beggars. That we wouldn't settle to be servants outside of the house when you've given us the invitation to live as sons. 
that from today forward, it's from glory to glory. I'm not going back to the pigsty. It's from glory to glory. You want my face, my face you will see. You want my voice, my voice you will hear. Morning by morning. You want me with you where you are? Okay, I'm coming. I'm here. Father, I love you. Show yourself to me. Reveal yourself. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at GatekeepersATI. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.